Good morning. We are here today with uh, Katie from Astro Law Group. Sorry, uh, Katie Young for Astro Law Group. Katie, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks. Nice to see you. It's good to see you. Always a pleasure to talk to you. What's going on these days? What is not going on? Well, uh, as you said, I'm the managing partner of Ad Astro Law Group in San Francisco. In my spare time, I'm the president of the International Cannabis Bar Association. I'm a mom of two, um, one of the busiest people you'll meet on the planet. And I'm a, you know, through my work, I'm an activist for cannabis, cannabis legalization and normalization uh, in California and beyond. So, you know, did you start the law group with a focus on cannabis or did it evolve? It evolved. Uh, I started the law firm back in 2014 with a couple of partners, uh, kind of based on the principle of you know, most law firm life is kind of storied to be awful. And uh, I worked in big law when I first came out of law school and was you know, fairly mistreated as an associate, but got really good experience. And uh, then I went. Yeah, I watched The Good Wife, so I'm, I'm completely up on all that stuff. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> super, super. Actually, that's one of the more realistic ones of the <laughs> shows. I don't. I tend not to watch lawyer shows for that reason. Cause I'm like, that's not how it happens. <laughs> I digress. Uh, yeah. So I started at Astro Law Group kind of as a response to typical law firm life. And it was in 2015. So just a year after the law firm formed that I got a referral to a cannabis consulting group in Oakland that had a breach of contract dispute. Well, I do breach of contract disputes and I know a lot about cannabis and I really like it. And so I went and this um always good to have personal experience right yes yeah, absolutely so I, I went and met this uh this husband wife team that owned this business in oakland that was facing this breach of contract lawsuit and you know chatted them up and explained to them you know that i had back in college i wrote position papers about the racist roots of cannabis prohibition and you know why it should be decriminalized across the country and it's always been something that's near and dear to my heart um and then the cannabis world was very much you know who you know um, and so this particular group asked me, have you ever represented anyone in cannabis before? And thankfully, I was able to say yes, because I had an ex-boyfriend from high school who was a grower in Oakland who's got more money than cents sometimes. And I bailed him out of a couple of bad partnerships and a couple of bad contracts. And so I was able to say, yes, I worked with you know, this individual on some of his various uh, business pursuits. And they knew him because this world in Oakland is pretty small. And so they called him up and he said, yeah, Katie is legit. I've known her since junior high. <laughs> so I got that one client and that kind of started off a chain as they, that client then had multiple different disputes happen, a dispute with their employees. They had a securities fraud issue in addition to the breach of contract. I mean, this poor business was catching it from all angles. And I went to my two other co-founding partners and said, you know, I think we found something here. There's no other law firms advertising that they'll do this kind of work. And I discovered this group of mostly really kick-ass women lawyers out of San Francisco who were kind of leading the charge on sophisticated transactional lawyering for cannabis businesses. And this was in the you know, pre-Maucursa days before 2018. This was back in 2015, 2016. And I said, I think we found something here. And I think we should really pursue this because we have sophisticated business litigation skills employment litigation skills, real estate litigation skills to bring to the cannabis industry where it's mostly the lawyering at that point was done by criminal defense attorneys who had necessarily had to switch their practice from doing the hard work of keeping people out of jail for accessing medicine, switching them to you know, forming corporations and writing contracts and then litigating when those things go wrong. 
Um, and so I really, I saw the opportunity and I called my insurance broker and I told her what I was up to. And she said, well, I'm way ahead of you, sister. I've been writing you on canvas lines for years because that's where I see the market going. And it was just absolutely kismet. Right place, right time, preparation met opportunity. I said yes. And then that one client that first hired me when they had those multiple problems, um, they got pretty far behind in their invoice with me. And I was like, guys, what are we going to do about this? And they said, look, we never met anyone like you. Uh, we intend to pay you every dime. But as you know, you know, money's tight because I just settled a bunch of cases for them. Um, and they said, how about we pay you every dime, but in exchange for the slow pay, the interest rate's going to be, we take you around to every party and every conference and introduce you to everyone we know. That was an absolute hell yes. And that's how I met uh, through a trademark issue that this first client had. That's how I met the original founders of what was then the National Cannabis Bar Association, a group of really kick-ass women lawyers out of Oakland um, who focus on transactional intellectual property rights and who had started this bar association. So I, I got in with them and I hung around with this group of amazing lawyers until they elected me as their leader. <laughs> <laughs> Worked out for me. There you go. So let's, let's be clear though. Um, you know, you're not talking about business setup. You're, you're talking about disputes and, you know, just let's be clear, right? We are fighters, not lovers. I will not Fair. form a corporation. I generally will not write a contract, um, but I will tell you, that's a terrible contract that you're about to sign. Please, God, don't sign that. Um, I will defend you if someone says you've breached a contract. I will bring a claim if someone's defrauded you or, or your business partner's messing with you. Um, the, the types of cases that I love the best are partnership disputes where the owners of generally a closely held business, sometimes a larger corporation, um, you know, have either shareholder disputes or fights amongst the board of directors and disputes between the directors and officers. Um, we do a fair amount of corporate dispute that way. Um, oftentimes it's LLC members who are fighting each other for control of the limited liability corporation. Uh, we do a work where, you know, pretty much anytime you're taking money, uh, from an investor, uh, not giving them voting, uh, giving them voting rights. It's probably a, or excuse me, not giving them voting rights. It's probably a security and it probably needs to be cleared through the feds, even though cannabis is still federally illegal, there's still securities laws that apply across the board. You know, same thing for employment disputes, right? It, you know, even though, you know, banking is difficult to access, you still have to pay your client, your, your employees, you know, on time and withhold the taxes and not, you know, there's no such thing as an independent contractor in California anymore, hardly after the dynamics case that came out a few years ago. Um, we also handle a lot of disputes in the real estate space, um, having to do with purchase and sale of land that would be used for a cannabis grow, um, leasing disputes for indoor grows, dispensaries, you name it. We represent businesses across the supply chain from seed to sale, ancillary businesses, you name it. Um, if shit hit the fan in your business, I'm the one to call. But so, we don't do proactive. I'm just the undertaker. <laughs> you don't want to have to hire me. No, no, absolutely not. Yeah, we get that. Um, so, you know, you've been doing this, what is it, six going on seven years? Yeah, since 2015. So, so six years. The landscape has changed considerably during that period, right? Um, you've seen the green rush, it's come and gone, and you know, I don't know where it currently is. Um, what's sort of the biggest changes that you see um, in the industry right now? So within California, I'm seeing an increased sophistication in the level of disputes that come across my desk. Where, you know, at this point, a couple years in from the January 1, 2018 implementation of the uh, regulations under California's Malcursa 
Medical and Adult Use Cannabis Recreation and Safety Act. Um, now that we've had a couple of years under our belts, the, the companies that were never going to survive have mostly died off or they've been absorbed. Um, you know, the ones that are going to make it are the ones that are that are lasting. And, um, you know, litigation is a real risk for all of these businesses um, because people have this kind of notion that money grows on trees. But in fact, it is very difficult to turn a profit in the cannabis business in the United States, given the effect of IRS Section 280E. Um, so I'm seeing that, you know, a lot of companies that are still around, it's because they're getting better assistance from knowledgeable professionals who know how to, you know, cost segregate and alloc allocate uh, funds amongst multi-entity business structures in order to make what is ultimately a viable family of companies. Um, I'm seeing more big law firms enter the space and offer more sophisticated legal work. I'm seeing even the, you know, the mom and pop operators from before who are really resistant to deal with lawyers because of their long history of really not being able to access the justice system. These folks are now coming around to, okay, it's time for me to enter the regulated market. It's time for me to come out of the woodwork because um, the state wants people to register and get licensed as a, as a legal entity in the state of California to conduct cannabis business. And you know, the, the state is trying to squelch out the illicit market, which is still thriving and alive very well. Uh, let's see, what else can I say about what I'm seeing? Um, you know, speaking of the state, you know, mm -hmm. one of the things that we're seeing is this, is this idea of equity. So can you sort of talk a little bit about, you know, where the movement is towards, you know, equity and, and what that means um, and what we can expect from that? Absolutely. So the concept of uh, social or economic equity in cannabis is huge. Um, if you followed or know anything about the history of prohibition of cannabis in the United States, it uh, came about in the Nixon administration, mostly targeted towards our black and brown brethren um, to you know, keep them away from this. It was never meant to stay on schedule one forever. No one actually believes that cannabis is more dangerous than cocaine. And yet that's actually the way it's, it's set up. And you know, our jails are full of our black and brown brothers and sisters who are being prosecuted for what white men are now making a killing off of. The idea of racial, or excuse me, of social and economic justice is being implemented in uh, states that have medicinal and, or adult use cannabis rules. And that is simply the idea that to the extent that you or your family in some cases has been a victim of the failed war on drugs with respect to cannabis, the jurisdiction is going to give you somewhat of a pass to the front of the line to be one of the first to get a license to open and operate a cannabis-based business in the jurisdiction. So for instance, in um, in Oakland, if you're from a certain area, a conviction from a certain area you, for, for possession or sale, you would be given this proverbial pass to the front of the line in, in the form of a different license type called a social equity license that has some more lax rules and they, they can form micro businesses instead of having, you know, that, that are vertically integrated on a smaller scale. Um, there's all sorts of perks for social equity applicants, which is the term for it. And then in San Francisco, um, when the city of San Francisco rolled out their social equity program, uh, for a long time, it was the, the you know, God honest truth that there was no hope of opening a cannabis business in the city of San Francisco um, unless you got in on a social equity license. Um, and so it's a it's great idea in theory, 
um, in practice is fraught with all sorts of problems. Um, problem number one, um, I think because of the you know, systemic violence and racism directed at, at communities of color, um, these folks are generally less interested in coming out and saying, hey, I've been convicted for you know, cannabis possession and sale and I wanna operate a, a legal business in, in, in the side of the city of San Francisco. You know, let me go ahead and file this application with the man and see if I can't get my license. There's, there's a disconnect yeah. there. Um, just And then secondly, even with the social equity license type, the cost of starting a cannabis business in the state of California, because you have to have pretty much the entire business, you know, starting with the lease and all the way through your security plan and your environmental review and all that, all that has to be in place before your application gets approved. So it's a huge capital outlay before there's any money that could even possibly come in because the licensing isn't in. So it means that these social equity applicants who generally tend to be less capitalized and less educated than, for instance, the money parts that come in, there's investors and other groups who come in and say, okay, we also want to operate a, a dispensary in San Francisco, but we're not going to be able to get in for years because we're not social equity applicants. So they pair up with the social equity applicants. And then, you know, a lot of, a lot of these work out really nicely. You know, business people who are using their their funding and their Harvard business degrees to really move the needle forward on cannabis normalization and cannabis decriminalization and really moving the needle forward on social equity and social justice and cannabis. There are just as many, if not more, who are the wolf in sheep's clothing and form the, you know, go ahead and have the social equity applicant enter into extraordinarily abusive contracts that ultimately strip the social equity applicant of the power that the equity program wants them to have. For instance, in San Francisco, the social equity applicant is supposed to be the CEO and at least 40% owner of the company so that they retain control. Um, but we all know that control is money and money is control. So like I said, it's a great idea in theory. In practice, it needs some work. And also it's not statewide. Every jurisdiction gets to determine whether and how to allow commercial cannabis within the jurisdictional limits. And that necessarily means that they can A, ban all commercial cannabis activity, and B, they can choose to have different licensing types, including having a social equity license. And so, so far, there's only a few jurisdictions out of the 537 in California that even offer a social equity tier of licensure. So the idea is out there being refined over time. And, um, you know, I really hope that we find a way to integrate more the uh, social justice aspect of cannabis decriminalization. I should also mention that um, the impact of AI, artificial intelligence, uh, with the uh, passing of California's Medical and Adult Use Regulation and Safety Act, um, there's supposed to be expungement of uh, previous convictions. And, you know, statewide, it's, it's, on the, the person with the conviction to go get their expungement. Whereas the city of San Francisco used a, an AI program to go ahead and automatically expunge mm -hmm. all those convictions that were out there. And uh, the city of New York is doing the same thing because New York just legalized. It's fabulous. And somewhere else, if I recall. New Mexico yesterday. <laughs> yeah, the green wave is sweet. You heard it here, exactly. Yep, you'll go ride that high tide. <laughs> how how does um how do all these activities then tie back into what you guys are doing with the International Cannabis Bar Association? 
Oh man, the Cannabis Bar Association is just where it's at for uh, cutting edge knowledge on not only the politics of cannabis, but the evolving law in cannabis and, and really the place to go for meeting other professionals who are super knowledgeable in the space in their area. Because one thing that's really important about cannabis is that it's hyper-local. Um, you know, state by state, the regulations differ. City by city, county by county, the regulations differ. And that's that seems to be true across the country. Local control is it's kind of the political compromise to address the NIMBY problem, not in my backyard. Um, so the Cannabis Bar Association, you know, our whole mission, education uh, to uh, give to other professionals, to give the, the most cutting edge uh, continuing legal education about the issues facing the cannabis industry and how lawyers are handling it, some of the best lawyers in the world that do this sort of work, uh, forming a community that's used for networking and passing referrals. And frankly, we throw the best parties. We've been thrown out of every Vegas hotel room we've been into. Do you remember parties, Mr. Doherty? No, it's been a very <laughs> long time. Right? I haven't left my house. Are you kidding me? Right. Well, I, I put on a Zoom top for you and I definitely did my hair and took, took a shower, put on some makeup. So I really appreciate it. I'm feeling very fancy today. I have been in a hole. That's why I'm this pasty. Apparently I haven't been out of the house, right? Got it. Got it. Uh, the other tenants of the Bar Association are access and leadership, you know, access to other members who are super knowledgeable in their area of the law. Uh, super supportive network. And then, you know, I think by definition of being involved in the Cannabis Bar Association this early on, all of us are leaders in the space. And, you know, when it comes to lawyering, especially the dispute work that I do, there is not a lot of precedent out there. There's no other cases I can point to to say this is how so-and-so court handled this, a dispute between cannabis businesses in the past, that it almost does not exist. And so by definition, a lot of the work that I'm doing and that my colleagues are doing is bleeding edge work, not just cutting edge, but bleeding edge. We are actually forming and shaping the legal landscape as we're doing it. I like to tell people I do the same kind of work as everyone else, except that I'm doing it surfing on a hot lava flow. How, how has the um, the federal environment changed? I know a couple of years ago they were, you know, they were going into Oakland and doing raids and all that kind of stuff. Are they, you know, are they sort of ignoring that? Are they enforcing anything? Will things change on the federal level? What's your take on that? Oh man, so the federal enforcement perspective right now is mostly relies on what's called the Rohrbacher Blumenauer Amendment, which is a, a budget right that prevents the, Depart the Federal Department of Justice from spending any funds to prosecute a state legal medical cannabis business. Not adult use, but medical, um, to the extent that that medical cannabis business is completely compliant with the state's underlying laws. Now, if you've read through the uh, cannabis regulations under Malcursa and what's come out since. Um, it's practically impossible to be in compliance with all things at all times. So the risk of federal enforcement is still out there. And in no other industry are we, you know, having generating multi-billions of dollars in flagrant violation of federal law. Um, but the Department of Justice is mostly hamstrung to do anything about it. And that came down, let's see, that was the the Rohrbacher Blumenauer Amendment was actually, it gets redone every year. Um, so I think it was just renewed. And so we're not seeing a lot of enforcement going on. There's still always the risk of civil asset forfeiture for professionals and for landowners, because um, to the extent that the business is, is non-compliant or violates the Controlled Substances Act, there's a risk that the federal government could come in and seize your assets. Not seeing that very much anymore. And so the name of the game is compliance. 
to the extent that the business is compliant with the, the rules of their jurisdiction to the T, the risk of federal enforcement is pretty low. The other thing too, if you're compliant with all of those, um, all those regulations, then you're necessarily steer, steering clear of what we call the dirty eight from the Cole memo back in 2013. Um, this was a federal government guidance back in 2013 that said basically to the extent that state legal medical cannabis businesses are not selling to kids or growing on federal land or you know, cartel activity. And you know, there's a list of eight things that the government has an enforcement priority on, which, you know, things that make sense, like, you know, don't sell to kids, don't sell to cartels, that sort of deal. Um, so Attorney Jeff Sessions, Attorney General Jeff Sessions rescinded the Cole memo in 2018, um, but in its place, essentially prosecutors should use their their discretion given the limited resources that the government has, which is government speak for, I'm doing this big chest puffing move to go ahead and you know rescind the coal memo, but carry on as usual. Yeah. And, and what about, you know, have we seen, uh, you know, there used to be, you know, like the, the doctor that would give you a card for medicinal, you know, if you went in with 25 bucks and a headache, have they gone away or are they still out there? Where is that? They're still out there. Um, certainly their industry's taken a hit, um, but medicinal use is still huge. There's a different taxation level for it. Um, you can have more plants at your residence if you have a medicinal card. So there still are benefits. Um, and certainly given what I just articulated about federal government enforcement, right? If you're at all concerned, go for the medical cannabis space. If you're a consumer, go get your medical cannabis card. It'll help you sleep better at night. Not the end of the world, but yeah, certainly that, that industry uh, took a hit because not everyone needs that card anymore. Not everyone needs a medical recommendation anymore to go, to go obtain cannabis. You just have to be over 21. And then, of course, the illicit market is still thriving. So if you've only got 20 bucks, I'm sure there's a guy on the corner in Oakland. And is the illicit market thriving because of the, you know, the taxes imposed? Why do you think it's thriving? Is it the taxes that are imposed? Yeah, because legal cannabis is expensive. Legal yeah. cannabis is very, very expensive. Not only the, the product itself, but then the taxation on top of that. And, you know, for a lot of people, uh, you know, the elderly and, you know, some, you know, some more uh, economically distressed communities, if they have a choice between a $70 eighth that's been, you know, it's organic and it's been tested, and although organic isn't really a thing in cannabis, but in any event, um, you know, the well, fancy- it's definitely not a thing in medicinal. It can't be organic. No. <laughs> uh, so if you're going for the, the really yeah. fancy, uh, you know, weed in the pretty, pretty jar that's 70 bucks an eighth, you can still, you know, get a get a bit, an ounce for 200. You know, people are still going to go get the ounce of weed that their friend grew uh, as opposed to the fancy fancy cannabis it's really i mean i i kind of think that all legal cannabis to an extent is luxury cannabis you know and same same thing with you know communities of color who have been uh you know systematically trained to you know fear any sort of law enforcement right these people don't necessarily want to walk into a dispensary and show their id right uh, because they've been systematically trained that only bad things can come from this sort of thing. So again, it harkens back to the illicit market. It's just easier to go with what you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, show your ID, be tracked, be in their system, you know, and then your purchases Some people really there. don't like that. Yeah, I mean, and there's other concerns about, I mean, because I know there's a lot of um, cybersecurity concerns 
around that, right? Because we're, you know, what we don't want is, you know, you may have, you know, this is medicinal, so it should be private. This is, you know, health information and health data. So what we don't want is that information conveyed to your employer, you know, things like that. You know, yeah. so, I mean, are the, I don't know if you know this, but like, are the, the uh, medical uh, facilities HIPAA compliant? You know, there. Uh, I don't know this for all the way certain, but it it strikes me that to the extent that you have a recommendation from your doctor, it is uh, protected by HIPAA. And you know, again, we don't. I don't think we have any law on this, but uh, to the extent that someone wanted to subpoena a dispensary's records to see if you purchased from that particular dispensary, if you had a medical card, I would argue that motion all day. I would argue against subpoena in court and say, no, 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 this is covered by HIPAA. This is private protected medical information. Um, and then with California's uh, fairly new Privacy Act, the um, which is the sort of the equivalent of the, the big GDPR, European- GDPR, yeah. Yeah, GDPR, I think it's called CCPA. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of software solutions that cannabis businesses in California uh, need to implement in order to become CCPA compliant and meet those privacy concerns and be able to, you know, completely delete people's data upon request. Yeah, I mean, the other thing too is, is, which is really important is how they choose to communicate, particularly with the medicinal clients. Um, on a non-cannabis related uh, example, we have a client that is a chiropractor that was texting. And we're like, you can't do that because texting is not a secure channel. So, you know, you, they had, you know we had to tell them, no, stop, you, you can't do that. Um, you won't be in compliance. So, I mean, to the degree that these um, facilities, you know, they need to be in compliance with how they're communicating with these with these folks as well, um, so that they don't violate HIPAA laws. Oh, I will also mention that. So, text messages are a big deal for cannabis dispensaries because there is a rash of TCPA litigation, Telephone Consumer Privacy Act. So, to the extent that you're getting text messages from your dispensary and you haven't specifically approved those, there is a cottage industry of plaintiffs' lawyers who are going around and suing everyone for these for these TCPA violations. In fact, it's the TCPA cases are the most commonly filed federal lawsuit. It's a real risk for people. I've had some some TCPA cases where uh, my client was a you know wealthy corporation that bought existing delivery service and just didn't vet their text message practices and got hit with a gnarly lawsuit for that. Yeah, there's not much you can, there's not a defense to that, right? You know, yeah. not doing your due diligence is not a defense. No, it is not. Right. Um, so what what do you see on the horizon? What do, you, what do, you, what do we expect, um, you know, Hopefully, you know, when things return to whatever normal will be, but what do you see on the horizon? So I think uh, more and more people are getting used to the idea of cannabis in the mainstream. And I think certainly um, COVID and being home and having uh, having cannabis workers deemed as essential workers has really helped change the stigma. Um, and then with the new Biden-Harris administration, you know, I expect that Kamala Harris, a you know, politician, woman of color from the San Francisco Bay Area who has seen firsthand because of her experience as a prosecutor, who has seen the devastation that cannabis prohibition causes to communities and you know, that it does in fact have medicinal properties. I think I think I saw a headline yesterday saying that the Biden administration is, is eyeing 
um, what to do about medical cannabis. So if anything, the federal government is going to address medical cannabis first. Safer, There's, right? Yeah, it's a safer right. approach. Yeah. Right. There's a, yeah, because no one's going to argue with sick kids. Right? Yeah. You know, yeah. Stony adults like you and I, not as... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I expect to see some movement in the Biden-Harris administration. I have heard tale through my connections that Senator Cory Booker's office is already working and spending this year writing policy that will be voted on next year. Um, and that seems like a reasonable timeline for me. Um, I've been saying for a long time, I think we're two years out, we're two years out. Uh, so certainly don't hold your breath for any of that. But, you know, as the as the green wave is sweeping the nation, we now have, I think, 18, the 17 states and, and D.C. that have uh, some form of uh, medical or adult use, you know, if not both cannabis and out of the 50 states. And it's just coming up more and more and more. And that's part of the mission of the Bar Association that I run is to make sure that those lawyers in states that are brand new to cannabis have to learn from the very, very best in the business from across the world. As you know, all these new localities that are you know, implementing medicinal and adult use cannabis laws, they're not coming up with this stuff from scratch. They're watching what's happening in other states. And so you know, we very much learn from each other and build the landscape as we're going along. And, and one of the challenges that we see is you know, some of the really big players, right? They're the big gorillas in the space. Mm -hmm. um, and they tend to stomp all over local. What do we deal? How do we deal with that? Oh, it's a tough question. Breaking question. All right. This is, I think, why a lot of people voted against Prop 64, uh, which would have been the adult. It was the adult use cannabis legalization or decriminalization rather in California. Um, a lot of people voted against it because they saw coming the exact thing that has happened is that you know, the big conglomerates, the big multi-state operators have come in. The Canadian public markets have come into California and bought up a bunch of mom and pop shops, uh, a bunch of mom and pop grows. And it's overall turned out pretty badly for the mom and pops out there. Because um, as I cited earlier, it's practically very difficult and expensive to get a licensed legal cannabis business going in the state of California. I mean, I had someone call me once and be like, I got a hundred thousand bucks. Can I start a business? And I was like, 10 X that, and then get a few more investors and then call me back. Maybe mm -hmm. I can introduce you to someone who can do it, but no, you and your hundred thousand dollars, you got, you got nothing going on here. Um, so then there's a legacy cash problems. A lot of these you know, longtime industry pioneers, you know, they've got money. They've got money that's never entered the system. Mm -hmm. So you know, there's there's some issues there, and I see I see a lot of um, unlicensed yet very uh, talented growers um, enter contracts with licensed grow facilities in order to sort of share crop. Actually, I've actually it, it's a terrible racist word, but there in one of the cases I have in Sacramento, the the parties actually referred to their arrangement as a sharecropping agreement. And, the uh, my clients uh, spent their own money to outfit the outdoor grow and harvest the cannabis themselves, and then the the guy who owned the licensed grow showed up, sold the weed, didn't pay my guys a dime. It's and pretty not a lot of recourse, right? There, I mean, there's lawsuits. And yeah. that's, I mean, that's what we're doing, and it, it's a it's a terrible form of recourse. Lawsuits are awful for everybody involved. Um, so yeah, those mom and pops out there are getting taken advantage of, especially 
Um, the Canadian money that came in, in in 2019, I saw a rash of those sorts of cases where mom and pop sold out to Canadians in a reverse merger and not realizing that for the you know low, low cost of the $300,000 they got up front, they've actually lost control of their entire life's business. Yeah, I mean, because we saw that in Europe where, you know, they just, I mean, because in Europe what they did, it's mostly medicinal and they only offered a few licenses. And then of course, you know, you, in order to participate, like you said, you had 10 millions, you know, you know, so, you know, it, there was no local grow. There was no local entrepreneur that was never going to happen. Um, what we hope and, and, you know, what we've always sort of thought from our side was that, um, when we get into more of a recreational usage, um, then maybe what will happen is you'll start to see more of like sort of the craft beer model where people who care about where it's grown, whether it is indeed organic, um, you know, and what it's grown with and how and all those types of things and whether or not it's grown in a sustainable environment versus, you know, the way we produce medicinal products, you know, which just basically takes, you know, tons of energy. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the connoisseur theory. Um, I should mention the push for appellations in cannabis, the same way that we have appellations for wine, like Bags Leap District, or this one was grown in in the Carneros region, or this one was from Champagne, France, uh, having that same uh, agricultural model applied to um, cannabis, applied to uh, craft cannabis, as as we're saying, right? You know where where it is, where how the soil is, what the water source is, all that sort of thing. Because there it's are grown some... outside, it's not grown under lights, that type of right. Thing. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. absolutely. Hopefully, we'll definitely see more sustainable pro, uh, pro, you know usage than we're currently seeing in, in the medicinal. Right, and even even the packaging. Right, there's there's a push to have the packaging be more sustainable because there's so many yeah. you know, proofing requirements and such. Yeah, we're hoping to see hemp product, hemp packaging, right? Yeah. Full use of the plant and stuff like that. Totally. Any sort of closing thoughts or something profound, which I know is putting a lot of pressure on you? Like, come up with something profound. Um, any closing oh, thoughts man. before we go away? I'm just full of dropping wisdom on you. Well, I can say, you know, for for those of you who are already involved in the industry, um, the best piece of advice, advice I can give you, or if you're looking to get into, into the industry, the best piece of advice I can give you is to hire the right professionals, people who know this space like a back, like the back of their hand, know the regulators, understand what's going on. You know, your, your friend's son who went to law school is not the lawyer for you on this matter. Um, and if you're having trouble finding someone, Yama Mail hook you up. Go check out the association. <laughs> Just because you've been smoking a long time doesn't make you an expert. Correct. <laughs> I mean, maybe an expert on smoking, but definitely not the, the law. <laughs> well, this is really fun. Thank you. Thank you. We very much appreciate your time and we look forward to uh, staying in touch. So uh, again, we will put your website in below so that folks. Can oh, let me say food. one more thing. If sure, you're interested one more thing. In joining, yeah. If you're interested in joining the bar association, use my last name, Young, Y-O-U-N-G for a 15% discount off of your membership. Wow. See that? It's worth it just to pay attention, right? Yeah. Again, thank you very much. We appreciate it and have a great day um, and hope to talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks.